Welcome to Lumpin Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin Radio. This week, we spoke to Bob Diber as part of Lumpin's series of interviews with all gubernatorial candidates. We heard new music inspired by a legendary French poet, and we spoke with a prominent local writer about prisons and teen lit. All this, plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on Lumpin Week in Review for August 4, 2017. Radio Free spoke to Bob Diber about his dark horse downstate candidacy for the governorship. This interview is part of Lumpen's series of interviews with all candidates for the 2018 Illinois gubernatorial election. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday drive time at 4 p.m. Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport on WLPN 105.5 FM WLPN LP Chicago. We are joined right now by gubernatorial candidate Bob Diber, and we're going to continue our series of interviews with candidates for uh, Democrat Illinois governor. And so we're here right now with Bob Diber. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. So, you know, first of all, we, we just want to tell listeners uh, why you've decided to enter the race and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your background. Sure. Um, I entered the race on uh, February 13th, and it was after uh, somewhat of an exploratory uh, period of time, uh, John, in which, uh, you know, I, I had looked at this race because for more than 20 years, no one from downstate had uh, taken on this endeavor to become a candidate uh, for governor of the state of Illinois. And after the 2014 election, uh, I noticed that uh, the, the downstate uh, voters uh, were looking for something different. And uh, so that was really the basis by which uh, I, I made the decision uh, to enter this race because I think we need a governor for all of Illinois. Uh, we have to end the divide between uh, the city of Chicago and downstate, and we have to look at what is good for all of Illinois residents. Uh, a little bit about me. For 38 years of my uh, professional life, I've been involved in public education, 28 as a teacher, 10 as a uh, elected uh, regional superintendent of schools in Madison County, where I oversee 107 schools, public schools, and 38 non-public schools. Um, of those 38 years in public education, I, I've also spent 22 of those years as a local elected official at uh, all levels of government, from being involved with city councils uh, to township supervisor, uh, serving two terms on the Madison County Board, and then my last 10 years of uh, being regional superintendent. Also, it may be of interest to listeners that uh, throughout my entire life, I've been involved in Illinois' largest industry, and that's agriculture. I come from a farm family, I'm proud owner of a centennial farm. That's a farm which has a lineage of heritage in Illinois for over 100 years. Uh, so I, I am the owner, and, and we currently still operate that farm um, as, as it exists today. So that's Bob Diver. I'm also married, uh, my wife of 25 years, um, and we have two two sons. Both are college age. One's a senior. One's going to be a junior. Uh, they attend a public university, and all of our education and our family has been public. So I've been a strong proponent of public education, been a strong proponent of organized labor, and I can go on and tell you about myself for this entire program, but I know you probably want to talk about some other things. So uh, I'll be glad to do that and then maybe fill in some more about me through the program. So, Well, thank you very much. You, you mentioned it yourself. 
uh, talking about the divide between north and south in the state. How, what are your uh, ideas and how do you plan uh, to kind of bridge that gap and bring folks together? Well, I think that, that gap and, and the depolarization of the state has to begin with trust. And it has to be, uh, both entities have to feel that the, the individual who they have is governor, is, is honest, is open, and is willing to work with them for the, the needs of their communities and that everybody's interest is best viewed. And that's what I intend to bring to the table. And, and I think something that's a big part of that is is the word compromise, because nobody ever gets everything they want all the time. And uh, so a, a great deal of compromise needs to be um, put forth here between myself and, and the entire state uh, to us to move forward uh, with the issues uh, with our shortfall of revenue, our, our outstanding bills. And we, we're all in this together. And I continue to say that I believe there's more that unites Illinois than divides us. It's just that we're not looking at it that way. Bob, I wanted to ask you if, uh, obviously, the last couple of days, Governor Bruce Rauner has vetoed a sharing plan for funding of schools. Obviously, CPS is now not getting, at, for the moment, a $250 million block grant. Education, especially in the city of Chicago, is a, is a hot topic and a sore subject around here. What would you do to solve this very contentious issue of school funding in the state of Illinois? Well, first of all, I, I would have signed Senate Bill 1, and I'll tell you specifically why I would have signed it. First of all, it passed because of the very fact that Senate Bill 1 funded all of Illinois, all schools and all children. That's why it had the, the votes to pass both the House and the Senate. So I don't say that this bill was perfect, but it was a bill that began changing uh, school funding more equitably in, in the state. So that I would do. What I would do, what I will do to maybe better correct um, school funding in, in the state is I think we have to look at how we are also utilizing our federal money and directing those federal dollars, those title dollars to schools that are in most need. I don't think we're doing the best job of that. We also need to be self-conscious of the loss of Medicaid uh, Medicare money that is going to be lost as a repeal of the Affordable Health Care Act to provide services for some of our kids. And so we have to have a plan in place um, for that as well. But the, the, the premise of how we are going to equally fund our schools that Senate Bill 1 was trying to get across, we, we cannot uh, eliminate one geographical area state from a piece of state legislation uh, because it is, it is not fair and it's not equitable. One of the things we've also asked other uh, candidates, particular to Illinois, I'm sure you've seen the headlines tonight that Obamacare rates in Illinois could soar uh, as much as 43 uh, percent. When we talked to some of the other candidates, obviously the budget hadn't been done and there was real uncertainty about what was going to happen in the Republican-controlled Senate this year with Obamacare at all. But regardless, the Obamacare exchanges remain a real problem. There are 800,000 people in Illinois that depend uh, on the exchanges for some form of health care. What would you do as governor to encourage the stability of these markets, uh, or would you look to create some other sort of program to provide health care for Illinois residents? Well, I'm most concerned about the health care needs of Illinois residents, uh, whether it's through an insurance program or through a state program. And I have proposed to begin a program called iCare uh, for Illinois, which is a reform of uh, health care services, both uh, medical as well as dental. 
and this program would be based around our community outreach care centers at the current time uh, connected with our university health service centers uh, and we would better fund these university centers to be the support basis by which we provided uh, community care for residents who have no health insurance. Uh, most importantly, we need to look at how much money we're spending in, on Medicaid in the state of Illinois. It consumes 42% of our state budget, and this number will only grow as people lose health insurance. So we have to look at how we are going to provide medical care for such things as earaches, fungal infections, um, maybe uh, bad lacerations, infections, etc. that we want to keep out of emergency rooms so taxpayers are not paying $300 for emergency room visits that could be taken care of by a nurse practitioner or, or, or a, uh, an intern doctor at, uh, at a medical institution that we already have in existence and the state's already paying for. Uh, I see this as a way to grow health services in Illinois and I'm going to just share with you something that I worked with the uh, Southern Illinois University School of Dental Medicine. Uh, we began a, uh, a Give Kids a Smile Day in which one day uh, each fall kids can come for free checkups, uh, extractions, fillings, cleanings, examinations at no cost in which dental students assist and help do this. It's been a highly successful program and this has just served thousands of kids who have no dental insurance that would never see a dentist and I give all the credit to Dr. Putin Jane, who was the director of, of the community dentistry program. Um, she, she came to me and wanted to partner in this because we had so many kids that missed school because of toothaches and childhood caries is the number one reason elementary kids miss school. And, and we've increased student attendance and, and helped kids have better dental hygiene through this program. I think this is something that could work throughout the state, not just for dental needs, but also for general medical needs. And uh, we also have community college programs that have mobile community outreach uh, uh, vans, et cetera, for rural Illinois because, uh, you know, a lot of people believe healthcare is just a problem maybe in densely populated areas, but in, in our far rural areas, uh, medical care is, is a real challenge because there's fewer healthcare providers. So that's something I want to help bring about uh, for Illinois to provide medical care uh, the, the whole medical insurance thing is, is a real challenge for the state, and I don't think the state could begin to subsidize an insurance program with the debt of $14.5 billion today. One of the biggest issues in Chicago right now, and it's been reported all over the world, is, is violence. What, what role do you think uh, the, governor's, the governorship plays uh, in helping with that, with that problem in Chicago? Well, for, first and foremost, uh, public safety uh, has to be a concern of the governor uh, throughout the state and in all of our cities and our neighborhoods. And one thing, the, st the state's been lax in, in helping finance probation officers uh, that, that do checks on um, our you know, people with current convictions and, and local units of government have been picking up this tab. So we have to do our responsible part and see that uh, our communities uh, have, have funding to pay for probation officers and also the general support of, of our police forces. But most uh, and foremost here, uh, John, in discussing this, is that we need to begin to develop programs that curtail crime uh, and, and reach at-risk youth 
and, and begin to curtail the violence of 13 to 18-year-old adolescents who are relentlessly shooting one another and creating violence in our neighborhoods. Um, and I think we begin doing this by mentoring programs. Um, I've, I've began such of a program in Madison County. It's called Give 30. I know there are listeners in, in Chicago that have, uh, have learned about this program because in my many visits there, people have talked to me about it. And as governor, the one thing I'll bring about is a mentoring program in our schools from middle school through high school to work with kids who are most at risk to keep them from committing violent crimes, uh, pairing them with uh, positive role models and giving them a positive choice. But uh, th those initiatives coupled together, I think we can de 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 deter crime in our cities and in our neighborhoods and, and, and make Illinois a safer place. So there's a special session coming up here uh, in the state house. Do you have any predictions of what might happen over the next couple of weeks? Uh, I don't look for a lot of movement. Um, not to be pessimistic about this, but uh, you know, I, I've used a, a word in uh, in this interview called compromise, and and that's what this is going to have to happen. I don't know if we're ready for that yet, uh, but it's it's going to have to take place. And uh, you know, I have met and have had serious discussions about schools opening in, in all of Southern Illinois, which I think everybody wants to open. Um, but uh, we're, I don't think you're going to see much action. Well, on compromise, pensions obviously continue to be a major uh, topic of conversation. Pension reform uh, in the state um, is going to have to happen at some point. If you're governor, what path would you take to make sure that the pensions uh, either pay out what they're promised or are reformed in some other manner? Well, first and foremost, let me say this. Um, if the pensions are going to remain whole, we cannot begin to allow individuals to leave the pension system because current participants in the pension system uh, meeting their pension obligations is the investment into these programs that's keeping it whole at the time and is paying, helping to pay for the annuitants who are receiving benefits. So that's first and foremost, is to keep the pension systems whole. We know we have a revenue problem. So then we gotta begin looking for revenue as to how we are going to you know, uh, reduce the tremendous debt that we have in the pension system. And these are some ideas that I have. Uh, for, first and foremost, the pension system was created to give everybody a, a retirement income and we've given them that tax free. So, so I believe you get one free tax pension. But if you're an individual collecting two or three or more, or more pensions, uh, I believe you should pay some tax on them. Okay, so that revenue from, from taxing additional pensions goes to help solidify the pension debt. Uh, another, another thought that I think we need to look at is allowing annuitants uh, that are collecting pensions to be willing to invest more money in the pension system to make them whole because these individuals are, are not paying any taxes on the pensions, they're concerned about losing their pension. So if they in turn invested into the pension system uh, as well, that would be additional revenue. So those are some initial uh, ideas that I have that I think are realistic to achieve through legislation. And, and those are directions that I will move uh, if I become governor. <laughs> I-94 spoke to Mairead Case, author of See You in the Morning, about being a working writer, working in prisons, and why young adult literature gets a bad rap. 
I-94 Lumpen's Books and Literature Show airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. And welcome back. You are listening to Lumpen Radio. This is I-94. We're here with Jeremy Kitchen, Mike Sack, Merritt Case. Of course, I am Jamie Trecker. I want to get back to your book, too, but before we do, you do a lot of other stuff. You do work in prisons as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's something I very, very to, interesting, yeah. and I want to get to that before we run out of time. Tell us a little bit about exactly what you do, and then uh, kind of want to go a little deeper into that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a place where um, being mildly obsessive compulsive now helps because, you know, you have to look a certain way to be able to, to get through the trainings and to be able to be present and um, – that's important. Um, it, it grew out of the work that I learned how to do here. Um, I learned from Annie Nepler and Hal Adams at UIC about doing community writing workshops. And the idea being that you sit down, you know, very loosely, the idea being and you're all looking at the same piece of paper and you read it aloud together and you just talk about it and how it relates to you. And, um, you know, if, if folks want to read a sonnet and we, we can talk about the Volta and like that sort of a power language, but it's just one version of a power language. Um, so I come into the jail every week and I bring in a packet about a theme that um, they usually choose um, if they have preferences. And then we so we've done, you know, modern love. We've done loss. Um, we've done the color orange as a way to kind of start talking about Trump. Um, you know, I, I try. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a therapist and I don't try and lead anything, but we're all sitting down looking at the same paper and talking and then we respond to it creatively. How many people are usually in a group? It varies. Um, you know, they can't. I'm I'm in there at the t- at the time right now with other um, support groups, which I don't I don't feel that I am because I'm not professionally trained for that. But that's kind of what we're going up against. And so if someone wants to go to their support group that day, I'm not going to tell them not to go. Um, and you know, people can call their kids at that hour, so they can't always come. But usually, on a good day, we have about 15 to 18. Oh wow, um, that's a good number. And this yeah. is in, this is in Colorado. Yes, and I've, but I've done it here too, and I've done it in Indiana. Um, and the idea being that you know. You all talk about ghosts and in class or in writing workshop, and then you also talk about ghosts and chow later that day, and then you make a friend in a very sincere way. You know, just for all the listeners, I think it's a little. It probably is a little too long-winded to talk about how you can get involved in that sort of volunteer work. But Maraid has a, a piece on it on that on that Tumblr site. Saying it's just called teaching in prison. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've done done some recovery meetings at cook county and Mm -hmm. it's always been a really cool experience and what they do is when you go in there they just put you in there Mm -hmm. with all these dudes and you give a lead it's it's it was pretty i always had a good time and everyone was really nice you know it was it was a very positive experience have you read any of um there's a there was like a lot of prison writers 60s and 70s and 80s i uh, edward bunker is one i don't Mm -hmm. know if you've ever read him i love him yeah and i this is really weird, but ever since I was a little kid, I've always had obsession with prisons and fraternities and sororities. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's because I did not know. This. Yeah, they're just like <laughs> I read books about them on both sides, and I think it's just because they're two things that are so alien to me, like fraternities and sororities, prison, right? So the two places I never want to go, um, but also like the stories behind them are so fascinating because it's just like it's not my world. Um, and I was wondering, do you ever use other prison writers that um, in, in your workshops? And maybe if you want to talk about some of those writers, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and we also, one of the great things about us just kind of being in that space is like we can also talk about how, you know, horrible that space is. It's basically like legalized slavery, you know. And, um, and so we, we... Is it a work program too? Um, not, mine isn't, but, okay. um, but people... 
are in work programs that are in there too. Um, we we read we read Rachel McKibbins a lot. Um, we read Asada a lot. Um, we read uh, the thing that we read a couple of weeks ago was um, Hattie Gossett has that piece in this bridge called My Back where um, she's like, and then I also have to write the introduction to my book. She's like, it wasn't enough to like write the book itself, and now I have to tell y'all what it's about, you know. And it's it's very real. It's like okay, like how do you want to explain yourself and like. Or when do you want people to kind of come to your work? And she doesn't use a lot of capitalization, too. So it's been a good way in there to kind of talk about power structures. Because, you know, not everybody uses capitalization. And it doesn't mean that you don't get it. It just means you're making a choice. Um, so we do a lot of that. Um, we read Kevin Koval and Robbie Telfer and, um, yeah, a bunch of different kinds of stuff. I, I try to take their lead. That's awesome. I was actually thinking about that a little bit. Just, you know, a lot of the Panthers wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, Asada was a panther, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is that Tupac's mom? No, no. Okay. Her name's Asada too, isn't it? Because Tupac's mom was a black panther. Yeah, yeah, totally. But yeah. The, yeah. Is that like a one of the names they take? Well, anyway, it's neither here nor there. But uh, I when I was I haven't actually I didn't read any of your nonfiction. I'm glad Mike read it carefully. I just read the book, but I I did want to talk about that because um, and does it um, does the administration feel that these programs are important or is it just something they have to do? Do you feel like it's something they're I mean, into, I, I guess, for lack of a better? Yeah, I think they're, they're into it as poetry. I always resist it being called like a, a therapeutic kind of a situation. Um, it is, though. Just I know you're not. No, no, I know. But, you know, every once in a while I'm like, you know, we have we always have two rules. The first rule is that um, we don't assume it's autobiographical unless you tell us, which lets people um, kind of like have the power for how they want to talk about their trauma. Cool. You know, and then um, the second rule is just to kind of keep it as a respectful space, which means you can speak whatever language you want. Like I've had deaf folks in the class. I've had um, there was there's one amazing I think she's 80 now she always writes porn um and uh she's she's just like this is what i want to do and this is great and she's always like Marie, you might be a little weirded out by this can you handle this now and i'm like i i can handle it today i'm feeling good about it and then she'll read her piece and she's amazing um so it's i think i think they're into it they wouldn't they wouldn't let me be there if they weren't you know that's it's interesting too because like an 80 year old woman not necessarily a menace to society still locked up you know yeah. it's the, the elderly prison population always freaks me out. I mean, obviously, you don't want, like, you know, Richard Speck running loose when he's 80. But, you know, it's just such a weird to keep people locked up in, the, like, you know, when they're 80 years old. It's it's it's, it's a, a bit bizarre. Plague. Yeah, and they're not society. getting the health care they need. And yeah. yeah. Is this a for-profit prison or is it um, one of the state ones? Um, right now I'm in one of the state ones. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that was actually what I was going to ask you. If, you know, I... It wasn't necessarily clear whether people were able to bring in and read their own stuff. Um, have you, in doing this, found writers of, of power and clarity that, that people, you know, just aren't exposed to at all? Um, because, I mean, it seems that there's a great many voices we, we incarcerate. I think it's 10 to 15 percent of our population, yeah. which is an enormous number when you think about it. And there's all these voices that were denied hearing. I mean, what, what are the... I guess, what are the lessons and, and things you've taken away from this? I mean, I, I appreciate, too, how you talk about it because it's like we're, we're denied hearing them. Like, I think a lot of times when people talk about this kind of work, they'd say, oh, you know, you're giving them a voice or whatever, and they definitely already have voices. It's We're just giving them a platform. Um, I think 
we always have a conversation too, and that's where the idea of like being a working writer and how money comes in. Like I've I've had several situations where people are like, "Oh, can you help me get published and make some money?" And um, that's not really how it works, as we all know. Um, so we have clarity conversations around that. But there there definitely are amazing writers, and um, it it is a privilege to just be able to sit and listen. Um, what's starting to happen now, which is really great, is people will bring in work of their own, as you're saying, and then we type it up and put it in the packet. So it's like you know so-and-so next to you has her work in here next to Asada, next to Angela Davis. Um, And so we're all reading it together. And I think it's really powerful. Like, as you know, like, oh, you walk into the library and you see your book on the shelf next to all these people. Like, my voice does belong here. And so then we can kind of open up that conversation. Um, So that's been a really privileged moment that I've had. It's really rad to give people like a fancy type packet with their own work in it, you know, or with so-and-so next to you's work in it. And you're like, oh, yeah, you're really great. Like, nicely done. Um, so it's a community building thing in that way. And then if they want to reach out beyond that, I can help them. But I, I try not to bring that in as a priority. Did you work in a for-profit prison? Because you said currently you're in a state prison. Um, I worked in a, in a like a juvie in, in Indiana that was for-profit. Oh I didn't know there were for-profit juvies. That makes my stomach hurt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it was... I, mean, I hate to laugh about it. That's just so gross. But it's kind of all for-profit to a point, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. This week on the Trump Diaries, the Joint Chiefs slap back, Trump fires three shots at LGBTQ citizens, Renz Priebus washes out, John Kelly lays down the law, and much more. But first... The Mooch Diaries. 11 days of greatness. Mooch is hired on July 21st. Sean Spicer immediately quits. Mooch gives his first press conference. On July 22nd, Mooch deletes all those old negative tweets about Donald. He had called him the president of the Queens County Bullies Association. The following day, he threatens to fire everyone to get rid of the leakers. Mooch's wife gives birth to their second child while he poses on Air Force One. Mooch then goes off the res on the 26th, first blaming Reince Priebus for leaking his publicly available financial disclosure form. In fact, the document was released in response to an FOI request. Scarmucci then called a reporter from The New Yorker trying to get Ryman Lizza to flip a source. Scarmucci said, Reince is a paranoid schizophrenic, a paranoic then used a profane sex act, act to describe Steve Bannon. Let's say it again. Uh, Reince is a paranoid schizophrenic, a paranoic, then used a profane sex act to describe Steve Bannon. On the 28th, Mooch's wife files for divorce, claiming Mooch's insane, naked ambition drove them apart. Mooch is escorted out of the office on the 31st on the orders of John Kelly. Trump tweets, WH, no chaos, and a great day here. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 189, July 27th. The Joint Chiefs slap back Trump's attempt to ban transgender personnel in the armed forces. Joe Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said in a memo to military leaders, quote, there will be no modifications to the current policy until the president's direction has been received by the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary had issued implementation guidance. In other words, Defense Department policy cannot be done by tweet. 
and the Department of Justice is arguing that the Civil Rights Act does not protect gay employees from discrimination. The DOJ filed a rare amicus brief in a private employment lawsuit arguing that while Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act bars the discrimination in the workplace based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, it does not protect employees from discrimination based on sexual orientation despite, quote, notable changes in societal and cultural attitudes. The brief also claims the federal government has a substantial and unique interest in the proper interpretation of Title VII because it is the largest employer in the country. DOJ further went on to note that Congress would need to change the interpretation of Title VII for justice to defend it. The Trump administration threatened retribution against Alaska over Lisa Murkowski's no vote on health care. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke called Alaska's other senator, Dan Sullivan, to deliver a troubling message that left him worried that the, quote, strong economic growth, pro-energy, pro-mining, pro-jobs and personnel from Alaska who are part of those policies are going to stop. That message backfired. Murkowski actually controls the Department of the Interior's purse strings. And the Senate approved sanctions against Russia, forcing Trump to decide whether to veto the bill or to accept the tougher line against Moscow. The administration has said Trump may veto the bill despite there being veto-proof majorities in both the Senate and the House. The Senate voted 78 to 2 to pass the bill. The House passed it 419 to 3. Day 190, July 28th. The Senate rejected the slimmed-down Obamacare repeal bill with Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and John McCain all voting no. That bill would have left 16 million people uninsured. Shortly after the vote failed 49 to 51, Trump took to Twitter saying, quote, three Republicans and 48 Democrats let the American people down. As I said from the beginning, let Obamacare implode, then deal, watch. And Rins Priebus resigned today, one week after Priebus endured a nonstop attack by incoming White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci. John Kelly, a retired Marine four-star general currently serving as the Secretary of Homeland Security, who oversaw the implementation of Trump's travel ban, is taking over as the new Chief of Staff. And North Korea launched another ballistic missile today. That missile flew for about 45 minutes before landing off Japan's northernmost island. The length of the flight suggests the missile may have a range greater than any the North has previously tested. And the Trump Organization is requiring that all employees at all levels sign a confidentiality agreement or else they will lose their jobs. The agreement shows that employees must keep secret any information they learn about anyone in the Trump family and extended family, including the present, former, future spouses, children, parents, and in-laws. The agreement lasts forever and is retroactive. And NBC is reporting that Trump's Voter Fraud Commission is divided on whether there was actually widespread fraud at the ballot box. Trump's appointees are saying yes, others on the commission are arguing there wasn't fraud and would rather focus on upgrading the nation's voting systems and encouraging voter registration. Day 191, July 29th. Trump appeared to advocate for rougher treatment of prisoners in police custody. Don't be too nice, Trump told law enforcement officers in Suffolk County, New York. He spoke dismissively of the practice by which arresting officers shield the heads of handcuffed suspects. I said, you could take the hand away, okay, said Trump. This speech drew widespread condemnation from police departments across the nation. At least one lawyer also says she plans to introduce video of the event as evidence in criminal offense cases in Suffolk County. And Democrats have moved to revoke Jared Kushner's security clearance, introducing the Security Clearance Review Act, which gives the FBI director the authority to revoke the security clearance of executive branch employees whose actions may pose a threat to national security. At least 20 Democrats have co-signed onto the bill. Day 192, July 30th. Trump tweeted again today about health care, saying, quote, after seven years of talking, repeal and replace, the people of our great country are still being forced to live with imploding Obamacare. If a new health care bill is not approved quickly, bailouts for insurance companies and bailouts for members of Congress will end very soon. 
Congressman reacted coldly to the tweets, with several saying publicly, it was time to move on. And Senator Jeff Flake said Republicans are complicit if they don't call out Trump. He added the Republican Party has lost its way. The last thing you want to do is wake up every morning and see a tweet. You know, it's tough not just to say, I'm not going to respond, and we can't respond to everything, but there are times when you have to stand up and say, I'm sorry, this is wrong. Day 193, July 31st. Trump fired Anthony Scaramucci as White House Communications Director 11 days after he was brought in. Scaramucci's verbal tirade against a New Yorker writer led to the departures of Sean Spicer and Rins Priebus, but the change came at the request of new Chief of Staff John Kelly, who has the full authority to operate within the White House, and all staff will report to him. That includes Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, and Steve Bannon. Scaramucci does not have an administration role at this time, according to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And Russia is preparing to send as many as 100,000 troops to the eastern edge of the NATO territory in late August. That is one of the biggest steps yet in the military buildup undertaken by Russian President Vladimir Putin. The establishment represents the first time since the collapse of the Soviet Union that so much offensive power has been concentrated into a single command. Day 194, August 1st. The Washington Post is reporting that Trump personally dictated a statement about his son's meeting with a Russian lawyer that was substantially false or misleading. That statement, issued to the New York Times as it prepared an article about the meeting, emphasized the subject of the meeting was, quote, not a campaign issue at the time. Trump's actions now have his inner circle fearing he is in legal jeopardy. He said one advisor, quote, they seem to think this is a PR problem. They don't seem to realize this is a criminal investigation. And Republicans moved on Tuesday to defuse President Trump's threat to cut off critical payments to health insurance companies, with several key senators moving toward bipartisan compromise. In Illinois, insurers may seek rate increases up to 43%, most of those on the barest bone plans due to the uncertainty of the markets. And the Senate overwhelmingly confirmed Christopher Wray as the next FBI director. That 92 to 5 vote to confirm Mr. Wray, a former federal prosecutor, is likely to be a relief to many agents of the FBI who want a strong director to stave off any attempts by the White House to meddle in its investigations. However, that vote is the first time that five people have voted against the confirmation of any FBI director at all in congressional history. And a new poll shows that global warming is essentially tied with ISIS as the most feared security threat around the world, except in the USA where cyber attacks and ISIS are considered the greatest dangers. The study also tracked how far Americans' views on climate change skew politically. Among the left, 86% cite rising emissions as a dangerous threat compared with just 31% on the right. Day 195, August 2nd. Trump is directing the Civil Rights Division to move to sue universities who allegedly discriminate against white students. The move clearly targets admissions programs that can give members of generally disadvantaged groups like black and Latino students an edge over other applicants with comparable or higher test scores. The move would reverse decades of affirmative action policies and it is seen as a sop to the far right who have claimed that whites are being denied university places by minority students. And a lawsuit charges that the White House urged Fox News to publish an article, later retracted, about a DNC AIDS murder. Fox says the lawsuit was completely erroneous. However, the lawsuit charges that President Trump personally intervened to make sure the false story was placed on Fox News. In a related story, the ousted Bill Shine, a former co-president of Fox News, has spoken with the White House about a position on the president's communications team. And Jared Kushner told congressional interns that Trump's election team was too disorganized to collude with Russia. They thought we colluded, but we couldn't even collude with our local offices, Kushner said. I'm a lot more comfortable talking to you guys today because there isn't any press. 
And President Trump signed legislation imposing sanctions on Russia and limiting his own authority to lift them, but asserted that the measure included, quote, a number of clearly unconstitutional provisions and left open the possibility that he may not choose to enforce them as lawmakers intended. And Rex Tillerson has refused to spend nearly $80 million allocated by Congress for fighting terrorist propaganda and Russian disinformation. It is highly unusual for a cabinet secretary to turn down money for his department, but more than five months into his tenure, Tillerson has not issued a request for the money earmarked for the State Department's Global Engagement Center, 60 million of which is now parked at the Pentagon. Another 20 million has been left untouched in other accounts, and if Tillerson does not spend the money in six weeks, it will expire. And Republicans trailed Democrats by seven percentage points on the generic congressional ballot, according to a new Politico and Morning Consult poll. This is the Democrats' greatest advantage on a generic ballot since the poll began asking this question last spring. Democrats lead Republicans 44% to 37%, with 19% of registered voters undecided. These are the Trump Diaries. The students of Yolo Cali spoke to the cool kids about growing up in Chicago, making cutting-edge rap music, and how they got their name in the first place. What's Up, presented by Yolo Cali in partnership with Lumpin' Radio, airs every Saturday at noon. So how did it all start with the cool kids? Uh, I believe it's uh, Chuck, you, and then who else? Mikey Rocks. Yeah, how did you guys came up with the cool kids? Or? Um, we met... Uh, through some mutual friends and then just kind of like start sending each other each other's beats through MySpace and then realized we didn't live too far from each other. So we would spend weekends just making records, just making records, making records. And they were getting really, 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 really good. And we would post them up on our MySpace and then all the DJ homies like Flostradamus or A-Track or Diplo, they were reposting it on their page and things just started to pick up from there and we realized we had something so I think the week before our first show we came up with a name and it was just trying to like sound like a rock band so we wanted a whole bunch of people to come so we only put half our face in the poster (laughs) and uh, we just knew the cool kids didn't sound like a rap group so if you heard the music coming in from outside and you just saw that like that juxtaposition of like, oh, that sounds like this, but looks like that, or this looks like this and sounds like that. So it was just kind of like a joke on words, but we made it our own. So now when you think of that word, you just think of us, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was a joke back then. But now it's like, it's the real deal now. <clears throat> it's just like, yeah, that's just the cool kids, that's the group, instead of it being like a pun, you know? Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about like the evolution of the cool kids um i'm still in it so it's hard to kind of like report back to you what's happened because it's still a first person experience and i kind of experience life like that where when it's happening it's hard for me to review what has totally happened you know what i mean as i look back um we had a lot of accomplishments early so I feel like the journey has been, you know, from the beginning of of where we started, everything happened really fast. Like, we, I don't even know if we were necessarily prepared for it. But through that time of getting there, realizing what we've done, what we had, I feel like we got really responsible about trying to manicure it and make sure it's something that people can continue to have that great memory from or when the first time they heard us they could remember it whether it be back in the day or like now you know what I mean 
So the evolution is just, it's not a hobby. It's not like what I do. It's just completely my life. So once you get to that point, things become, hard work becomes a little bit easier because there's really no other option. Like nothing's really that hard when there's no other option. Like when you got other options to kind of like compare and contrast and be like, well, this would have been easier then you can start thinking things are hard. But if it's the only thing you have to do, then it's just what you have to do. So I think us growing into this is just what we have to do, this is more important than just us and what we want to do. But it will allow us to do what we want to do. That's kind of like the evolution, just understanding how responsible we have to be with something so cool that you know people, people are really into. So. And what can you tell for, like, youth and for, like, those, like, young, young, you know, people who are, like, really into rap and have their own SoundCloud um, portfolios with, like, songs of them uh-huh. and YouTube channels who want to be or look up to the cool kids? What would be my advice to them? Yes, what would be? Um, just let me think because that's a really good question. I don't want to just say something. Uh, shorthanded but if you believe in it like it has to be you know like for you you can't be just doing things to prove something to a girl or to your parents or you know like you want to rebel because the music you make stays here forever so if you're making bad songs and you're just thinking like oh I just want the attention when you grow up, that bag song's still there with you. Right. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. your kids will find it. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's athletes and like grown ups with, you know, Fortune 500 jobs where people are uncovering like their college, you know what I mean? Goof around song. Mm-hmm. And it's just like music is really important, you know, to life. Like, there's not too much things in life you do without it. So just take care of it. And if you really believe that you're good, stop and keep getting better. You know what I mean? Like, you're never that good. Right. So just always keep keep getting better if you really like doing what you're doing. I think that, like, advice comes with questions, though. So when people have questions, it's easier to give, like, the advice, like, oh, what should I do? Like, the pure advice I would give is don't listen to anyone. Like, figure it out on your own. Right. Like you can take advice, but don't you don't have to follow it because a lot of people don't know what they're talking about because you can't really know what you're talking about unless you've done it. Now you could be a spectator and you could see how it's done and you can give your own critique, but you'll never really really know until you do it. So unless someone's doing it or like willing to accept the fact they don't know but just want to help, like don't take too much advice. Cause it'll just lead you down the wrong direction. So just feel it in your gut and just believe in what you do beyond like what you see in a textbook. Cause I know there's posters in your classroom that says believe in what you do, but like <laughs> really believe in it. Like where you see it completed where you can see yourself 30 years down the line and exactly clear, like down to, you know, what your socks you have on that day. That's what I mean about believing. Um, so, do you have any uh, artists that inspired you to start out with the Cool Kids? Um, yeah. 
Um, Crisscross, like, was the first group I ever saw where I was just like, yo, I want to be those dudes. And I don't really think I ever left that because they were still cool, you know. And rest in peace to one of them, to Chris. Uh, I forgot what the other, I forgot their names. One's Chris Smith, one's Chris Kelly. I was the biggest Chris Cross fan, so. <laughs> um, them first, and then, like, to me, when it started, it was like a hybrid of, like, NERD and Chris Cross. But, like, with my style of music, I just wanted to, like, give those images off. So that and just, you know, I've been a musician since I, I can remember. Like, since I saw my first pots and pans, I was banging on them. I started playing the drums at six years old. Um, so a lot of my inspiration is my childhood. And I have a really crazy photographic memory, so I can remember things from my childhood, like, down to the, like, time of day. <clears throat> so it's like holding on to those keeps this really relevant because that stuff was still cool. Being an adult is cool, but it's just not, it's not as <laughs> I'm, like, trying to make being an adult cool. Like, if I can accomplish one thing on this planet, it's just, like, figure out how to smooth things out so people can enjoy being an adult, too, because it's trash at the moment. <laughs> 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 like, so enjoy your youth. Like, if you're a kid, don't rush to be so adult because it's not as cool as you think it is. And it's, like, all you get to do is drink. And you know what I mean? Like, if that's all you want to do, trust me, it's not as tight. So enjoy your childhood. Like, finish that video game. <laughs> yeah, go, yeah, go, go outside. Climb that tree. You know what I mean? But yeah, it's a little play, long gone for play, me. Yeah, <laughs> play play football in the street. Like, just enjoy. You know, enjoy the process. Um, I believe you guys uh, opened up for MIA back in 2008, if I'm correct. I'm not sure. Uh, late 07. Yeah, oh, yeah late 07. Um, who are some of like artists that you would like to open up to like in a festival? Uh, or concert. Or like concert. concert. Yeah. I've thought about this a lot. Yeah. Um, just on a rock show, it would be like the Chili Peppers, just to be the rap opener. Oh, I would go on. I would cool. go on first and like be the opener, like when the lights were still on, just to be on, <laughs> on the Chili Pepper show. Um, I mean, being on festivals, it kind of gives you that. Uh, it gives you that like mystique of have performing with these artists. So, you know, when we did Coachella in '08. Prince went on the same stage yeah. we went on and I just put it in my head that I opened for Prince <laughs> I mean know. you went before him right I yeah. mean in a yeah. way you, you, did. Know what you did yeah you, you did, did. Yeah. there was only two more artists that went on so it was like if that was a show it would be like us then the other openers and then Prince so in my head you can't take that away from me Postmodern Talking spoke with Theater Ublex Martha Bain and Dan Buchan about their presentation of Closed Casket, the complete, final, and absolutely last bottle air in a box, this weekend at Constellation. Pomo also debuted a selection from that show called Albatross, performed by Curtis Eller's American Circus and presented here with kind permission. Postmodern Talking with Bobby Kahn and DJ LaDuce airs every Monday at 8 p.m. Postmodern Talking with Bobby Kahn and DJ LaDuce. And uh, tonight, we are very happy to have 
uh, two very special, friendly friends, uh, Mr. Dave Buchan and Ms. Martha Bain. Uh, and we're talking about a poet who maybe some of you may know or not know. He's French, he's dead, and his name is Charles Baudelaire. Um, Dave, could you tell us three of your favorite facts about Charles Baudelaire? Uh the first time I was ever on the radio and was asked that question. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So this is a common question for you. This is no, uh, but uh, should I ask for seven favorite facts? Seven. Uh, no, I'll stick with you. Oh, can I do one? Sure. Because when I was the first time I was on the radio, all I could think of was one. Okay. And all I could say was, "Well, he was a dandy." A dandy. And then later, back at the house of the people I was staying with in North Carolina, Diane mocked me mercilessly for how bad I was in the radio. It's oh. like, all you could say was use a dandy. Like, you need to be better at this. And I don't know if I've gotten better. So I, I'll just say he, he, he was, was a dandy. He was a dandy. In yeah. appearance, his clothing? Yeah, oh yeah. He dressed well. He was a well-dressed man? He was a, yeah. So we played a, a where's that record that we just, ladies played a, an album that I, I like to think is sort of uh, inspired by Charles Baudelaire. It's a, uh, the band uh, Saint-Tropez, Belle de Jour. Uh, it was in French, which I don't understand. And would you say that Charles Baudelaire may have looked like this gentleman here? If he had access to as good makeup artist as that guy had. Do you think he, do you think he wore as much lip gloss as some of the people depicted in this record? It was, you know, it would fit with the dandy look. Okay. I could see that. So what time, what time are we talking about for dandy look? Is this uh, 18... Mm, 1840s and 1850s. Yeah, I'd say 1850. He's in his prime. Okay. And then the prime leaves him quickly. And okay. it's kind of all downhill. So I don't know if he was, like, you know, he, he had a stroke before he died. He was okay. a few years of just of being syphilis. a vegetable. Syphilis? syphilis? Yeah. Every interview got to mention the syphilis. That's okay, fact. so that's another fact. There we go. Two Dandy, facts. Dandy. A well-dressed, syphilitic... Yes. Uh, a well-dressed, syphilitic... Uh, third poet? fact. Poet. He was that's a too poet. easy. Poet's too easy. Yeah, well, that's... Um, yeah, I, mean, I mean, that's what we're talking about. He because complicated feelings about his mother. Okay. Oh, yeah. Very complicated. Yeah. He liked cats. And his, and his father dies really young, and his, his mom remarries... Uh, a general in the army. Did he have an evil, domineering stepfather? Yeah. Who was like, why is my stepson a simpering poet? Uh, was yeah. he simpering? Was he? He was a dandy. Yeah. <laughs> kind of goes with the territory. <laughs> you mentioned the dandy. Yes. Aspect. Yeah. So. So simpering. Fact number three. Okay. Simpering, dandy, syphilitic, syphilitic. And let me just spell it out for people. You don't get syphilis from a toilet seat. Okay. Who in those days in Paris? Who no, knows? No, you don't. You don't. You ha- you need to have a. You need to meet a friend, mm-hmm. and exchange certain exchange, things. Exchange money ad- being one of them. Money and uh, yeah. So I've noticed some of the poems. Uh, he seems like he was maybe one of the first people to really kind of revel in uh, the pleasures of what we, I guess the pleasures of the flesh. I, I think so. Uh, both in sexual and also uh, inebriation uh, and also just sort of a passion. Uh, so, I, I, for instance, tonight I told DJ Le Deuce when he asked what the theme was, I said, 
Well, you'd probably bring music that's French, uh, gothy, and uh, sort of you know fantasy metal along the lines of Iron Maiden or uh, like Ronnie James Dio, because it's delightful. It's uh, mm-hmm. a frolic, uh, and I think I would say that Charles Baudelaire had an active fantasy life, um, but it also seems he may have realized many fantasies, more fantasies than perhaps I have realized. I doubt it. I, no, one of the new poems for the show uh, is Parisian Dream. Uh-huh. And it's real. It, it's, it's him just like sitting, looking at the river and dreaming of, uh, and it, it's kind of uh, banally like, ah, oh, there's icebergs and it's water mm-hmm. and, it's, and there's naiads. Is that how you pronounce that? Yes. Yeah, uh, and it's it's uh, yeah. No, I can see it as a, as cover art for a, okay. A, you know, yeah, because I think of a lot of like prog rock when I hear, uh, listen to uh, and read the Baudelaire lyrics, especially Puris and Dream. That could be that could be like a late era Yes song. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I feel like there's a dearth of prog rock in the show. And we need more prog. Well, yeah. we're trying to bring a little yeah. of that in, but you know, but just a smidge. Uh, so, Martha, what's your role in this Baudelaire project? We don't know what Dave's role is, but I'm going to start with you. What's your, how would you say, what's your cog? Uh, what is my cog? I got you're a, the co- uh, my you're cog, a cog has like five sides. Five-sided so cog? Five-sided cog. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 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 should you say what the project is? No, I think it's I think it's more exciting <laughs> it to know. Builds excitement. Yeah, this is, yeah. Yeah, this is really, the excitement is really going to build now. Um, yeah, I I'm the I am the uh, I'm the publicist. Uh huh. And the tech director. Uh huh. And the housing coordinator of and the cranky building assistant. Assistant. Uh huh. Um, and a uh, singer. And sing and a singer and a composer. So and the lighting designer. And the lighting designer. You that comes s- under tech director. Six car- oh, there you go. Yeah. Doesn't it? Um, uh, so I'm cocktail facilitator facilitator. Okay. So I'm hearing <laughs> that you're 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 putting Party on house. you're putting on some kind of show. We're putting on a show, baby. Friday night. Friday night. So this is something that's happening. We're just gonna talk about something that's happening, which is a performance of how many songs? That's a really good question. I think songs are 160 songs. 160 songs. And by song, we mean a Charles Baudelaire poem set to music. Exactly. Set to original music. Exactly. There's, I think, 130 different poems, uh-huh. but 30 of those poems are have two different versions. Because one they're in, so good. They're yeah. so good. Yeah, they're so good. Yeah. There's one in English and then one in Spanish. Like Cain and Abel, which we listened to. Uh-huh. A little bit before there's also a version in spanish which is completely different like i didn't let them listen i to wouldn't i wouldn't let them listen to it no well now i can right now that they've, now they've, they've already, written their song yeah. and then they won't now be, they can listen they won't be sad when they hear my song so they're gonna see your song <laughs> they won't you know <laughs> and it's too late because they can't change theirs to make it no no they're yeah. not allowed to change anyway anything. so so you're putting on a show and it's a hundred and I already forgot the number, but more than 100, which let's is more... Let's say 160. Let's say 160 uh, Baudelaire poems set to music, set to original music, performed live, and it's at the... Uh, the uh, Where is it called? The Constellation. That's right. Which is on uh, Western and uh, just south of 
Belmont. Exactly. In the city of Chicago, and that's this weekend. Sometimes to amuse themselves, the men of the crew Snare an albatross, those vast seabirds They indolently trail behind the ship As they glide over the deep and salt blue As they glide over the deep and salt blue Scarcely have they pulled them Produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Additional music this week by Kevin McLeod and Curtis Eller's American Circus. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Yeah.